Over the last couple of months, we were looking at faith practices. Anyone remember that? Yep. And it's been really important to look at the things that define us as Christians. We talked about the fact that often we think about the things that we don't do as Christians, but our faith practices are actually the things that God has called us to do. And we read in 1 Peter chapter 3, we read the type of things that God has called us to do are to practice unity. Isn't that right? To practice unity, to practice tenderheartedness, to practice brotherly love, to practice encouraging speech, not criticizing and undermining people with the way we talk, but encouraging people by the way we talk. To practice peacemaking, being peacemakers in our world, not troublemakers. And the last thing we talked about was the idea of being generous. Generosity is a calling that Christians are called to do with their lives. That when someone insults you or does wrong by you, you don't repay them with evil, but you repay them with a blessing. And these are the hallmarks or the actions of the Christian faith. I also talked about the fact that uh, it's with our faith practices, they grow stronger the more we do them, the more we put them into practice. That's why it's called a faith practice. We use the illustration of athletes, isn't that right? That an athlete will train and train and train a skill so that they will become able to use that skill on game day without even thinking. And it goes the same with our faith practices. The more we do them, the stronger our faith becomes. And as I reflected on that lately, I was taken back, you know, this idea of practicing, I was taken back to my days as an elite sportsman. Why are you laughing? It was in grade seven at Enfield Primary School. I was, I was elite. That year, this is, this is how my love for sport was. I, I loved sport so much back then. That year, I would play Aussie Rules football, Friday afternoon football, grade seven. Anyone remember that? Friday afternoon football. There used to be football matches between schools. So I played that. Saturday morning, I'd get up again and I'd play soccer for the school as well. And then Saturday afternoon, I'd go out and play church basketball for... Broadview Uniting Church. And in that year, 1980, that was the year, the year my sports career peaked. I got the best and fairest for my football team, my soccer team, and my basketball team. Is that impressive? Beat that, Benito. So... The fact is, I loved playing sport, especially if it was a team sport. I loved it. It was something I loved doing. And uh, the one thing I didn't love so much about sport is training, especially running laps. There's nothing more boring than running laps. Anyone agree? It's a, but I loved playing the sport, and so I understood that I would train so that I could play the sport, because that... They had this stupid rule that you had to train if you wanted to have a game. So I thought, oh, I've got to do it. I'm going to train I'm gonna, so I can play the game. And, and the reality is, if we think about it, it's very similar with our relationship with God and our faith in God. You see, 
what drove me to train was not just this idea that I should train, I should train, I should train. What drove me to train was my love for sport. My love for sport made me go, I will do the things that I don't really want to do, like run laps, because it will give me the opportunity to do what I love, which is play the game. This is the thing about our faith practices, is they must always be be driven by our love for God and what he has done for us. Our faith practices, I'll say that again, our faith practices must be driven by our love for God and our passion for what he has done for us. Just in the same way as I love sport and it drove me to be out there and doing whatever it takes to play the game, I believe our love for God should drive us to live our lives how God has called us to live them. The story is often told about sports people who, who get into a form slump or they, they get into this idea where it becomes hard work and, and their, their, their ability and their skills aren't as good as they should be. And when they're often interviewed, and sometimes these people, they, they're in such a bad form slump that they go, well, I'm retiring, I'm resigning, I'm giving up because it's just not the way it should be. My, my form is not as good, so I'm just going to give up. And when they're asked, why are you giving up? Why? And many of them will say this. They say, well, it's just become hard work and I've lost my love for the game. It's not like it was when I was younger, when I had this passion and zeal for the game, and so I'm just going to give up. And the reality is that can happen in our faith as well, that we can lose our love or our passion for God And we just go through the motions and do our duty and do what we think we should do every Sunday or whatever it might look like for us. I'll share my own personal example of that. For In our last church, for many years, over 15 years, I worked in this church. And when I started, I can remember loving what I was doing. But by the end of it, before we stepped out to plant this church, there was a, a... a reality where it had become like work for me. That ministry and serving God had become a duty, but I wasn't really being driven by my love for God. I remember it was one of the first things that God spoke to me about before we planted this church and reminded me that it's all about relationship with Him. That it's all about our love relationship with Him. And the Bible talks really clearly about this, about this idea that we can do our faith out of duty rather than out of love. I want to share with you a scripture that many of you would probably know in Revelation 2, verses 2 to 5, where it says, I know your works. This is God talking to the church at Ephesus. He says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and have found them liars. And you have persevered and have patience, and have laboured for my namesake, and have not become weary. That's pretty good. All of those things sound like they're pretty good things, don't they? It's like, you've done all this stuff, you're persevering, you're patient, you can discern evil from good, you're doing all these things, and like, this is great. But then this next thing God says to them, nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. 
Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove the lampstand from its place unless you repent. This is the thing. They were doing their duty, but God said, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. We've, many of you have probably read this phrase, read this passage, and it's a constant challenge to the church and to us as individuals when it comes to our faith. Are we still operating from that love and passion place when it comes to our relationship with God? Do we still love God with all our heart, with everything we have? Or are we just going through the motions, doing our duty? Have we lost our first love? When we talk about first love, it's that love where we couldn't wait to open our Bible every day. Do you remember that? Where we're so excited to go to God's Word because what is God going to say to me today? That first love is that love where we couldn't wait to get to church on a Sunday or to any meeting that church was putting on because it was an opportunity to be in a place with other like-minded people where we could encourage and be built up and learn more about God. Dare I say, and maybe I'll throw this out there, we're having a worship night tonight. How many people were excited to see a worship night on our calendar tonight? Jack was... Prem was, there's a few. How did it excite you to think we, because the worship night, what it's about is coming and just taking time to worship God through music and prayer and just spend time in God's presence with each others and pray for each other and, and just worship Him. Does that excite you? Or does the state of origin excite you more? Or what's that ninja show? I don't know. But when your first love was that love where you couldn't wait to get to church, whatever meeting it was, maybe even a general meeting was exciting to you, whatever it looked like. You see, first love is that love where you prayed like that song that we sang today, here I am, here I am, you can have it all, everything I am, everything I'm not. Remember those prayers? where you are just willing, whatever you want, God, I'll do it. See, first love shows that our love and passion for God comes before our lifestyle and our actions for God. It starts with God's love for us, and we respond by loving Him in return, and then it changes the way we live our lives. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, 33. And we're going to, this is going to be the key text because today we start a new series called Pursuing God. And the key text is Matthew 6.33, which says, But seek first, seek first, first love, seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. In this passage, if you read it in the context Jesus has just been talking about the worries of life. And he's saying, you know, this is all this, you worry about this and that and all of that, but you don't have to worry with God because he clothes the lilies of the valley. He, he knows every hair on your head and everything else. You can trust him with your life. 
And then he says, and this is, instead of worrying, what you need to do is to seek the kingdom of God first and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. It says it like this in the Amplified, which I like. But first and most importantly, seek, in other words, aim at or strive after his kingdom and his righteousness. What is his kingdom and his righteousness? It says, his way of doing and being right and the attitude and character of God. So we seek after his way of doing and being, his character and his attitude. And then all these things will be given to you also. In other words, God will look after the rest for you. This idea of pursuing God, of seeking him, with all, all their heart, when Jesus was talking to the Jews, it wasn't something new to them. You see, from when they were young children, they were taught the importance of seeking God. It was part of their faith, and it was something God had established with them right at the beginning with the children of Israel, that they would seek as part of their lifestyle and, and the way they do life, that the key and the central point of it would be to seek after him. There's an account where Jesus a religious ruler comes to Jesus and he says these words. It's in Luke 10. And he asks him a question to test him. And he says to Jesus, Teacher, what do I need to get eternal life? And Jesus answered to him, What's written in God's law? And how do you interpret it? And this rich or the young religious ruler said, That you love the Lord your God with all your passion and prayer and muscle and intelligence. This is from the Message Bible. In other words, we, we would know it as you love the Lord God with all your heart, your mind, your soul and strength. Isn't that right? And then he goes on to say, and that you love your neighbor as well as you do yourself. And Jesus says to him, good answer. Do it and you will live. You see, this idea of seeking after God with all your life, with every part, your spirit, your soul, your, your, your physical being. You wonder why we lift our hands in worship and praise God. It's about worshipping God with everything that you have, every part of yourself. And, and God established this as part of their way of doing life. It's like in, in any relationship, we read here that you love God with everything you have and then you love others as yourself. So the first part is to love like in any relationship or anyone who's ever been in a relationship, if you're married, I do believe I have the perfect marriage. Julie does too. She's just joking before. Not, not that it's perfect, not perfect, perfect, but we love, the aim of our marriage is that we would love each other with everything we have. And then we live out that love in the way we live for each other. That's how healthy relationships should work. It starts with love and then it comes out in the way we live life. In the same way, with God, love comes first. We love God with everything we have and then we live a life that honours the love we have received from God. Isn't that right? Here's the exciting thing. That was what God established in the Old Testament. Now, Fast forward to Jesus having a talk to this religious leader. Now we're in the New Testament. And here's, here's the exciting thing. Because right now, in, the, in this situation, God is showing 
them exactly how much he loves them because he became one of us in the form of Jesus. So now they don't just have to love this idea of God and all the things he might have done for them before. Now the exciting thing is that in front of them, in Jesus, they have the exact representation of God. They're no longer in the dark to what God is really like because in Jesus, we see God as he really is. Isn't that right? Talked about this before, but this is what's so incredible. God and his ways are no longer hidden from us. God has exposed himself. And I'll use that word exposed because I want to get your attention. I could say he's revealed and that's nice. But think of it as exposed. And he's shown us himself fully as he is. Nothing hidden. Nothing covered up in Jesus. If you want to know what God is like, read about Jesus. Read about him. Because he shows us exactly what God is like. And in Jesus, you see how much God really loves us. Here's where it gets exciting. Because like this situation in, in the Gospels, this story here, there are many, many accounts of what happens to people when they encounter Jesus, or in other words, they encounter God in Jesus. You see, when, they, when people experience God in Jesus or God who is Jesus, their lives are transformed. We heard the story of, who thinks Lazarus' life was transformed? Just a little bit. He was dead. He's alive. Think of people like Peter and John and the disciples. Their lives were so transformed that they gave up everything to follow him. They said, that's, that's what happens when you experience God in his fullness and his love for us, that you, you say, I'm giving up everything else and I'm following him. That's what first love is. We think of the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, who gave, he gave away half of his riches once he experienced Jesus. Many people were healed. And over and over again, these people that experienced God in Jesus said, God, I give you my life. I want to follow you. I want to go where you go. I want to live for you. I want to live in every way possible my life in a way that honors you. You see, that's what first love is all about. And today I want to look at one of these people and go a little bit deeper here to show us what first love is really all about. And the person that I want to share about is Mary of Bethany, who was Abby on the end there. Mary of Bethany was the sister of Martha and Lazarus. We don't know what her full name is. All we know her as is Mary of Bethany. And uh, we, one, what we do know is that Jesus was a good friend of Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And as you, as a kid, so uh, ably told that story, he loved them so much, he did something very significant for them. That when... Lazarus died. Jesus loved them so much. It's, it's that part where it says Jesus wept is when he discovered that Lazarus had died. He wept. He was, 
He was emotional about it. It, it touched his heart because he loved Lazarus. But he also loved Mary and Martha because he raised Lazarus from the dead, knowing that without Lazarus, those two women would have been destitute in that time. They would have had nothing. Without a male figure in their lives, they would have been, dare I say, left on the scrap heap because that's how society worked then. If you didn't have a man, you, were, uh, you had very little hope. So Jesus' great love for them was to raise Lazarus from the dead to give them hope. And uh, so I want to look deeper into how Mary responded to Jesus. And in Mary's response to Jesus, we see how, what first love looks like. Now I want to share two encounters. Now if you, these two encounters are very similar, and some scholars aren't sure whether they're accounting the two same things from different viewpoints. But to me, when I read them, I believe they're two different accounts encounters that Mary had with Jesus because um, they look very different and uh, but it they show us Mary's heart and desire to be close to Jesus the first one is found in Luke 10 verses 38 to 42 where it says and Jesus and his disciples continued on their way to Jerusalem and they came to a certain village where a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home her sister Mary sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he taught. But Martha was distracted by the big dinner she was preparing. She came to Jesus and said, Lord, doesn't it seem unfair to you that my sister sits here while I do all the work? Who's ever thought that? Tell her to come and help me. But the Lord said to her, my dear Martha, you are worried and upset over all these details. There is only one thing worth being concerned about, and Mary has discovered it, and it will not be taken from her. In this story, we discover the key to living out the first love we have dis discovered in Jesus. It's found in a hungry, devoted, passionate relationship with Jesus. First love is not just about a connection, it's about a relationship, as Mary displays. And it's about a ferocious hunger to be close to him and to understand his ways and to position yourself in a place where you can hear from him directly. Jesus calls it the one thing worth being concerned about. Some of us might think that's a bit arrogant, but it's true. What he's saying is, I am the one thing worth being concerned about. I am because he knows that he's God and that in him is everything she needs. That he has the answer to everything in her life. That he is the source and that we find who we truly are when we find Jesus. This is the reality of what he's saying. She has found the one thing worth being concerned about not other stuff not to be concerned about making meals or or our bills and all of that sort of stuff it's about being concerned with him mary discovered this and she did everything in her power to pursue it mary's example of first love shows us that first love is all about overcoming obstacles if we if you're to understand this 
you need to understand the culture of the day. We, we read it and we get a little bit of an insight into it when we read this passage. But you can see that Martha was preparing dinner. In the culture of the day, women didn't mix with men. Uh, you might find this hor horrifying and horrible, but a woman's place was in the kitchen. That seems pretty foreign to us today, but that's the reality of what their culture was like. A woman's place was there to prepare meals, look after men, and the men sat in the other room talking and chatting and talking about the things of life. That's what it was like. So for Mary to not be in the kitchen, but to be sitting at the feet of Jesus, she was overcoming a massive cultural obstacle. It was a huge obstacle. That she, the, the men in the room were probably going, what is this woman doing? Might have been calling her names. Who knows what they would have been saying. But there, it wasn't just that that she was overcoming, but she was prepared to say, I don't care what society says, I want to be close to Jesus. I want, that's what first love looks like. I don't care what the world tells me, I'm going to chase after Jesus. Because in him is everything I need. There is God and I need God. But she also had to overcome the obstacle of her family and her sisters um, getting her sister getting mad at her and, and bringing up the point, what is she doing? And Jesus actually corrects Martha and says, she's going after the thing that's most important, Martha. I'm not taking that away from her. And this is the thing. In our world today, maybe we don't have the cultural barriers like that, but we do have the worrying about what people think barriers. Isn't that right? What are people going to think if I want to chase after Jesus? Are they going to think I'm being too radical or too crazy? What are people going to think about me if, if I'm at church every week or coming to church or, or what are people going to think if I'm reading my Bible daily? What are people going to think if I'm talking about God all the time? These are real things that we need to, what first love does is it overcomes those barriers because we understand that the one thing worth being concerned about is Jesus. And so the fear of people is no longer a barrier to us. If we want to place ourselves in a position to put Jesus first in our lives and to love him with all that we have, then we will need to overcome obstacles that become barriers to us putting him first in our lives. It's the reality. And there's all sorts of obstacles out there. It's, there's friendships, there's workplaces, there's all sorts of things that will tell you that's not worth going after. But first love says, I don't care about the obstacles. I only care about being close to Jesus. I'll leave, leave you with this question. What obstacle do you need to get over to pursue God today? What obstacle do you need to get over to pursue God today? Maybe it's your family telling you that stuff's crazy. Why are you doing that? Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's worries that you have. Your bills. Maybe it's your health. 
to all sorts of things. But if we're going to pursue God, we have to get over those obstacles, those things that have become barriers in our life. The second thing Mary teaches us about first love is that first love pays the price. The next story about Mary is in John 12, and this is after, in John 10 is Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. So this is after Lazarus has been raised from the dead. And it says, six days before the Passover celebration began, Jesus arrived in Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from the dead. A dinner was prepared in, honor, in Jesus' honour. Martha served and Lazarus was among those who ate with him. Then Mary took tw- a 12-ounce jar of expensive perfume made from essence of nard, and she anointed Jesus' feet with it, wiping his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance. But Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, said, that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. Not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. But Jesus replied, leave her alone. She did this in preparation for my burial. In her action of anointing Jesus' feet with this perfume and wiping his feet with her hair, Mary was showing absolute and passionate, sold-out devotion to Jesus. Obviously, she again is overcoming obstacles. She's going into a room with men and sitting at Jesus' feet, uh, which she shouldn't have been doing, according to them. But this time, she did something even extra. Significantly, she did something that would cost her personally. We don't know where she got this perfume from. Who knows, it may have been saved up for her wedding day. Made a bit means being saved for some important moment in her life. It was obviously worth a lot of money. Maybe it was left to her, to her from her parents. Who knows what it was. But in her action of washing Jesus' feet with this perfume and wiping them with her hair, she was declaring her absolute devotion to Jesus. What does that mean for us? What it means is, to put it very simply, returning to our first love will always cost us something. It might cost you your time, or it definitely will cost you your time. Not might, it will. Giving Jesus your time, which might mean sometimes at night turning off the telly and opening the Bible. It will definitely cost you your resource like it costs Mary her resource of giving of yourself, giving of your, even your money and other things because that's what living for God is all about. And it will definitely cost you your reputation with people. Some people will think you're crazy to be doing that for God. But the truth is, when you love someone, you will be willing to pay the price. 
Think of it in the natural terms. When you love someone, when you find someone and you fall in love, you're willing to give up single life to become married to someone and to live with them for the rest of your life. Well, that's the aim. You're willing to give up what you had to include someone in your life forever. That's a sacrifice. But that's, you don't think of it that way. You think, I can't wait. And this is what first love looks like. It's willing to pay the price. It's willing to do whatever it takes to pursue God. Another question for you. What price are you prepared to pay to pursue God? What price are you prepared to pay to pursue God? So just in closing, our purpose, the reason we were created was to have a relationship with God. The Bible is very clear on that. The reason God made us and created us was with the purpose of relationship in mind. So in other words, the reason we exist is to fall in love with God. And then it's his job to make that love affect the world around us. Jesus explained it this way when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. He made it very simple when he told the story of the vine and the branches. And he said, I am the vine and you are the branches. Apart from me, just like a branch can't exist without the vine, you cannot exist without me. Jesus demands and cries out to us that he wants to be our source for all things. As I've said, in him is everything we need. To put it simply, you discover what you were created for when you meet your creator. When you experience Jesus and God, your creator, then you discover this is what I was created for, to have relationship with God. That is the be all and end all. And from that, everything else will flow. Everything else will come. That from that, I will gain identity. I will understand who I am and what, I'm, what I exist for when we're connected with him. Mary's example shows us clearly that if we seek him first, all these things will be added to you. You see, in that moment where Martha was complaining about her, Jesus gave her clarity and said, Mary, don't ever stop doing this because this is the one thing worth being concerned about. Knowing me and hearing from me and sitting at my feet and positioning yourself in a place where you are close to me is what will bring you life. It will be what will transform you. And then when she broke the perfume on his feet and, and washed his feet with that perfume and with his hair, he said, she's doing this in preparation for my burial. And so he's saying, what you're doing is preparing me for what I have to do for you. Now, not long now and I'll be dying on a cross for your sins and your brokenness. Why? So that we can have relationship. So nothing can stand in the way of relationship with me. Like Larissa said in her worship, Jesus with his arms open wide like on a cross, 
is holding back everything from us so that we can have relationship with him. As Matthew 6.33 says, but seek first, but seek first. First love seeks first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Let me say this today. If you lack anything today, let me say this. The answer is found in falling in love with Jesus. The answer is discovering who Jesus really is, that he is God and he loves you. He loves you with so much passion that he died on a cross for you and rose again so that you could have a relationship with him. There's nothing in the way anymore. You can know him personally. As the passage in Revelation says, if we've lost our first love, the thing we must do is repent, acknowledge, hey, I don't love God the way I did before. I'm doing this out of duty or whatever. But I'm going to turn back and I'm going to run towards Jesus and sit at his feet again and love him like I did before. He says, repent and return to your first works. What are your first works? It's just loving God with the same love you loved him when you first met him. We're just going to pray. Why don't you bow your heads in prayer? I asked a couple of questions in my message. What obstacle do you need to get over to pursue God? And what price are you prepared to pay to pursue God? This is a solemn message. It's a challenging message. But maybe it's a time to reflect and to think, am I loving God with first love? Or am I just falling into the trap of doing my duty? Because God loves you and he is always welcoming and wanting you back.